Let's join in prayer. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've learned so far as we've worked our way through these chapters of 1 Kings. We thank you for King Solomon and how he previewed our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that even though he failed you, and we'll learn more of this in the weeks to come, thank you that your love was upon him. And thank you for what he did. As we read about in this chapter today, we pray your blessing upon our meditation together that we might learn more of your will and grow in the love and the knowledge of our Saviour, we pray and ask in his name. Amen. Well, there's little doubt that the world has seen some magnificent and notable buildings throughout the course of history. Some might say that any one of those who formed the seven wonders of the ancient world, such as the great pyramids of Egypt, or the hanging gardens of Babylon, or the temple of Artemis at Ephesus, would take the prize. Others might vote for any of the buildings that form the seven wonders of the current world, like the Colosseum in Rome, the Taj Mahal in Agra, or if they are true blue Aussies, they might say the Sydney Opera House. Readers of the scriptures, however, would surely have to say that the most notable building ever built was Solomon's Temple, something that becomes our focus in these next chapters of 1 Kings. We have seen so far in our journey through 1 Kings the story of Solomon's accession to the throne and that all-important moment when God answered Solomon's prayer for wisdom and gave him what he requested in bucket loads. And we've begun to see how that wisdom expressed itself in so many aspects of his rule, in the administering of justice, in the organisation of his own administration and the expansion of his own mind to have so much knowledge on so many subjects. And so it ought to be no surprise to us that Solomon, with all this knowledge, knew how to build a temple. And so as we come to chapter 5, we come to this section in which the temple becomes our focus. Now in approaching this chapter which tells us of the work that had to be done, even to begin construction, some might well put it into the box of a boring, uneventful chapter we could pretty well pass over. But to do so would be to miss the significance of what's taking place and fail to see some lessons we might learn as we look at what happened, especially as the temple began. For the details included in the text are surely there, as are all the Old Testament scriptures, for our instruction, says the Apostle Paul. So let's not skip over it, not at all. But let's note what we can, so we might not just learn facts, but we might also be instructed and encouraged as all this once again points us forward to Jesus who came to build his church 
And he's doing so, but not with bricks and mortar. Let's note these three things from chapter 5. Let's note firstly the conversations that led to cooperation. The first nine verses of our chapter deal with a quite a series of quite remarkable conversations in verses 1, verses 2, verse 7 and 8 between Solomon and King Hiram of Tyre, a kingdom just to the north of Israel that technically fell under the jurisdiction of Solomon's reign. Now Hiram is not a new character in the story. In fact, we met him in 2 Samuel chapter 5 when we last looked at the life of David. When David set about to build his palace, he called upon Hiram for the timber that his country was so famous for. And while David has passed from the scene, succeeded by Solomon his son, Hiram is still king in Tyre and with relations between the two kingdoms quite peaceful and with the knowledge that David's building project had been well supported by Hiram, Solomon wisely turned his gaze to King Hiram again. After all, when you found a good tradie, you don't let him go, do you? You hang on to him. And so we have this picture of messages being sent through the servants from one king to the other. Hiram congratulating Solomon on his rise to the throne. Solomon sending back thanks and requesting timber. Hiram sending back an agreement to be worked on. And Solomon replying through his messenger with thanks and the assurance that all this is going to turn out wonderfully well for both of them. Don't lose the sight of the fact that Hiram is a Gentile king and note it well. For generally speaking, in the unfolding of the scriptures, Gentile kings were anything but congratulatory to God's people, let alone cooperative. Just think of all the Gentile kings we meet from the surrounding nations in the Old Testament whether they be the Philistines or the Ammonites or the Moabites, who were such a thorn in the side of David. Think how the Gentile kings liked to interfere in the spread of the gospel, how they imprisoned Paul and Peter, how they beheaded James. You get the idea, don't you? This kind of exchange between the king of Israel and the king of Tyre could only be because God was in this and was superintending all the details. And in those details we find three quick things to note. For a start we see the timing of this building project of Solomon's. We remember that it was David who first had this earnest desire to honour God because David lived in a luxury palace while God's dwelling place was a tattered old tent. And so this idea to build a temple for God came from David. But David was prevented, Solomon says here, because he was a man of war, that he was too busy fighting. It may well be the case that this would have sent a wrong message to have a man of war building a temple, easily misinterpreted, that the God of Israel was himself a God of war, which was a common way of thinking about the gods in the Old Testament and a trap that the people of God occasionally fell into. 
Then also note the circumstances around this building project. Solomon was quick to recognise that in a time of peace, on all sides of all his borders, he was presently enjoying a God-given opportunity to build a temple. There was peace on every side. Whereas David was constantly having to send out armies to control and conquer the Philistines or the Moabites or the Ammonites or other enemies, Solomon ruled through this time of peace and he could turn his gaze inward to this project and have no fear that his borders were being overrun with enemies. Then also note the motive for this building project. Although David's desire to build had been genuine, God's response had been to say no. So David had to content himself with the long view of the matter when God told him that someone else would do the task and that someone else would be his son who also had this same desire as we see here to build a temple for the name of the Lord God. Solomon's motive was pure. He was concerned with magnifying the glory of God to make God's name even greater than it was and bring him greater glory. This was the the motive of Solomon's heart. His sole purpose as king was to glorify God with the peace on all sides and a position on the throne in order to do this, to build for the name of the Lord his God. Now you might ask a question and rightfully so. How does a building glorify God? I ask that because there have been many throughout history, even those who built this building, So the plaque says out the front, you can go and read it. They did it for the glory of God. We need to remember that's not the case that God had no glory for himself without a temple. It's not as though the building of the temple would bring God glory because God had no glory. Not at all. Remember that Moses saw the glory of God at least on one occasion and was spared death when God revealed his glory to him? And we could add that it wasn't as though God needed a house because he was being rained on and was needy. Nothing like that. God is in himself perfect and complete and infinite in need of nothing And keep in mind too that there is nothing created on earth that could ever hold him. That is something he could fit inside when the whole universe itself cannot contain him. Let's get that right at least. Instead, the temple was going to be a place where his people could meet with him, where he would be resident among his people place whereby sacrifice they might draw near to him again bringing partial restoration of what Adam and Eve knew in the garden of Eden but lost because they sinned and fell. So while this temple might well be viewed as a temple as a building of unsurpassed beauty as we'll see 
It's not the building itself that glorifies God. But what takes place inside the temple that glorifies God and brings him glory? See, the temple was to be the place where sacrifices were brought and blood was shed. It wasn't just a beautiful building. It was a blood-filled building. It would be the place where sinners could find forgiveness of sin and fellowship with God restored. It wasn't to be just a bit of eye-catching engineering, but the very heart and soul of the gospel as the gospel was understood at that point in time. Always pointing forward to the one who had come to be the final sacrifice. The one in whom God truly could be said, he lives among his people. There will be much more to say about the temple as we go on in the coming weeks. But keep that in mind, in the forefront of your minds. All this was of grace and it all pointed to Jesus and the gospel we know through him. And so the proclamation of that gospel in here, now to us and through us, is that which glorifies God. Second note from these verses, the cooperation that led to contracts. The next part of the text in verses 10 to 12 reflect on the peace that resulted and the mutual benefit in this arrangement with this tariff-free bartering system across the border, whereby Hiram was most generous in the freedoms granted to Solomon in this whole aspect of trade between their respective nations. Now, don't lose sight of the fact that Hiram has a kingdom of his own to run. And while he has the natural resources in the country that Solomon so wanted, namely the famous timber of the land, Hiram isn't about to just let Solomon's men come in and take all these resources without some kind of payment. And so the text tells us of that, doesn't it? How Hiram directed his workers to get to work straight away with the felling and the cutting and the dressing of the timber, which even included the delivering of these building materials by, by water to the port that Solomon desired, and in return for these vast beams and quantities of timber, Hiram would receive from Solomon, thank you very much, food for his household. Now last week we thought about the system that Solomon arranged by which he and his entourage were fed. You remember what he did? How every district had to bring food for a month for the king's table. You might wonder if Hiram heard of this arrangement and seeing it sounded better than a HelloFresh delivery or any other meal delivery service, thought to himself, yeah, I'll be on in that. Thank you very much. It sounds good. And the text even gives us the details of the amounts that Solomon was required to supply, namely 4,400,000 litres of wheat and of oil per year. 4,400,000 litres. That's a lot of bread being made there at the other end. But as verse 12 indicates, all this was good. God continued to supply Solomon with wisdom. Those border relationships were kept at peace. 
Both kings are happy. One because he has a full supply of timber and the other because he has a fullness in his stomach. Or so it seemed. Thirdly, verses 13 to 18, we note the contracts that led to construction. In order to complete the task, workers were needed. And those of those workers, some were conscripted into service by Solomon into the easier and more honourable part of the work, the felling of trees and helping to square them. And for this the king appointed 30,000, but employed only 10,000 at a time, so that for one month's work in Lebanon they had two months off, both for rest and for the dispatch of their own affairs at home, so would not be overworked. But others, the 70,000 burden bearers and the 80,000 stone cutters, were not granted times of rest as these others had. Extra biblical sources tell us that these men were possibly slaves, men who had been captured from other lands, possibly from Canaan. And theirs was work, work and work and no rest. And why all these workers? Well, the project they're undertaking is so big. The vastness of his his undertakings, as he refers to in Ecclesiastes 2, required this vast number of workmen. And the end result is recorded in verses 17 to 18, that the foundation of the temple was laid and it seems that the first stone as is usual in famous buildings, was laid with some solemnity and ceremony. Solomon commanded and they brought costly stones for the foundation. Even though forever being out of sight, lesser stones might have done the job. But in this, Solomon did what he did not yet understand. He previewed that the most precious stone of all, the chief cornerstone, the one that the builders rejected, Jesus himself, would be the most precious and all would be built on him. Now I for one can't necessarily at the moment square these two things. On the one hand the wisdom of Solomon and on the other the fact that he has slave labour. I'm not at all going to suggest that wisdom goes hand in hand with slavery. Nor is this what the passage is teaching us. But it does give us a puzzle to think on. This wise king and yet this slave labour. And it's in this context, it's good for us to remember that Solomon, who was a king, who deserved respect and obedience, yes, but he never had done anything for his people, expressed power over them, to rule them, to direct them. Unlike Jesus, who served them, and loved them and saved them by giving himself up for them 
rather than just ruling them, giving us a response of loving him who loved us first. Well, what to conclude and how to apply this interesting chapter? On the surface of things, perhaps you might conclude that the text addresses the best way to encourage relationships across borders, between nations or between kings. Or maybe it gives a blueprint to help us to be friendly with our next-door neighbours. Maybe so. Or maybe it suggests the value of a variety of contributions to the work made by many, kind of like the image of the many parts of the body that make up the church. Well, maybe there's something better than those three. I think there is. See, we should remember that in Jesus, it's been mentioned from time to time over these last few weeks, we have a king greater than Solomon and in him we have one who is constantly being pointed to and foreshadowed by King Solomon. And though Solomon is setting about to lay these great stone foundations and massive timber frames that might become the most important building ever built, these fade into insignificance behind that which Jesus did and is doing in the building of his church. So we can and will read of this coming together of the temple as a preview and a shadow of another temple. That which is not made of timber and stone, but of a people saved by grace, unfinished though we might be. Paul spoke of this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, saying of the church in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, as much as it might surprise you, this building we are in is not that special. Now, don't get me wrong. God's presence is certainly here and his word is proclaimed here and he can be met here, but this is not where he lives, as if this is the only place that he can be found in here. Instead, his plan is to make many temples throughout the world, all of his children, the dwelling place of God. So we note this parallel we have. On the one hand, the raw materials being transformed into dressed stones that made up Solomon's temple. And on the other hand, the raw materials that we are in our king's hands who are being transformed by his grace into the living stones of his temple. Someone has rightly pointed out that it's likely that Solomon's dressed stones might have been in better shape than the human ones. How many of us have perfect right angles? How many of us have perfect records with no blemishes, perfectly polished, reflecting the image of the maker 
Yet God in his grace is able to incorporate sinners into this new temple, qualifying us by the finished work of Jesus on the cross, mortaring us in and mortaring us together, not by our own righteousness or by our works, but his grace. And so we're a construction site. The hammering and the chiseling and the shaping are ongoing. The work is not finished yet. The foundation has been laid, but the construction work goes on until the day when the people of God appear in bridal robes to be united to the one who loved us and saved us and whom we now serve, not as conscripts, but as objects of his love. Love with which he saved us. And what a calling that is. What a responsibility that places on you and me. If you belong to Jesus by faith, then you are a living stone in the temple that's being built for the glory of the one who saved us by his blood. And so, as Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1, in view of these mercies, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. See the response that is called for. We serve because he saved us. And we do that not because he forces us to serve him, but because you want to out of love, because he loved you long before you ever loved him. It is the quote I've used before. It is as the quote I've used before goes, I will not work my soul to save, for that my Lord alone has done but I will work like any slave because I'm loved by God's dear son. All we do, all we say, all we think, how we behave, what we do must spring from this matter of the heart that is out of love for him. Not because we're compelled in the sense of conscripted against our wills, but because we want to, willingly, gladly, obediently, fervently, happily, because he first loved us and gave himself for us so that we might be part of the greatest construction project ever. It's not the temple. It's the church. You and I, living stones built together on the most precious and costliest stone of all. Responding out of a response to his love and grace, most of all, for his glory. What a privilege it is to serve him. Will you do that? You view your life as a response of love. Let's pray. We bring thanks to you, Heavenly Father, for the things that are recorded in your word for us.
As we read of these arrangements by which the temple would be constructed, we think even more on the arrangements by which you might live within us, no longer in a building, but within us, that we might be built together as those who serve and love our King. We thank you for that costly foundation stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we are being put together as a temple and our service in his name is valued highly. Not because we are good, but because you have blessed us to be part of the temple, the church of the living God. So enable us to respond in love with thankfulness, with fervent obedience, because not we, because we are commanded to do so, but because we want to. We've been loved by our King and we want to serve him with our whole heart. Teach us these things that our hearts might reflect truly what it is to belong to him. These things we pray in his name. Amen.